Joel Kim Booster and Mitra Juhari are doling out funny nicknames and questionable advice every week on Urgent Care. You can call them at 323-334-0371 or email urgentcarepod at gmail.com to get your burning questions answered. For more, follow at Earwolf on social media. Happy listening. Close the windows! There's a fierce wind blowing! It's not from the skies, it's the twisty turvy history of a World War II Shiro's legacy. Tennis, racism, the Nazis, there was nothing the San Francisco legend couldn't fix with her powerful backhand. Watch out, world! You just gotten your hair blown back by Alice motherfucking Marble. This is History, the Sheikwool. You might well be the most accomplished 50-year-old woman I've ever met. Thank you so much. And how old are you? I'm 15. <laughs> you have, I have to be honest, when I saw your resume, which wasn't really a resume, it was just you bragging in an Excel spreadsheet, but your the amount of stuff that you've already done as a 15-year-old would blow most adults out of the water. Can you tell people about some of the stuff that you're interested in that you've done? Because you've, you've actually gone on speaking tours, correct? Uh, not tours per se, but yeah, I have done a couple speaking engagements um, at different conferences where I talk about um, different things, different advocacy-related topics that I'm passionate about. Can um, you name the top three that you're like, t- like you're like this? These are my like passion projects. Yeah, so just like issues that I'm passionate mm-hmm. about. Um, so first of all, representation and kind of. Ensuring that more representation makes it into the media is something that I'm really passionate about. And um, you mean that like, sorry to interrupt, you mean that like, it's not just like straight white people definitely. on the news. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Men. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not a white man, so that's, it's not. Mina, I would I have know. never hired you. So it's, it's a little bit difficult when you just never see yourself represented ever. Um, How did you know though? That you had a problem with that. Because, like, when I was a kid, I didn't I didn't have that, like, critical thinking to look at Magnum P.I., which is a show you don't know about, and be like, I want to be a detective in Hawaii. Well, I mean, first of all, ad- activism has always been really ingrained into me by my parents. I went to my first protest when I was two years old. I was on my dad's shoulders and at the immigration rally. Um, and so they were always super, they were always telling me that, If I have opinions, I should share them and I should make them heard. I have a lot of opinions. Sometimes too many people have told me. So uh, that's never been a problem for me. But I, it's honestly because I think I got a lot of messages from my parents telling me that I can do whatever I want to do and be whatever I want to be. But when I kind of stepped outside of my little home bubble and saw pretty much all the messages the outside world was sending me, the magazines at the corner store or the commercials on TV or like the signs in toy stores, um, it was telling me like a very different story. So that was kind of- A gender story. Yeah, a of very gender story. what was expected story. of you, mm-hmm. yeah. I'd get directed towards books that I didn't love at the bookstore because they were about princesses and horses. Um, and I was like, I don't mind these, but I don't- love them either. Well, you know, next time somebody points you in the direction of a princess book, let them, do you educate them on what a life of a princess was like? I mean, I feel like- No that's power, a, That's a little bit of a, a long bucket. conversation yeah. to have in a bookstore, but I do try to make that known 
in in more formal settings. Okay, good, good. So you so you basically go lecture on how you would like to see more people, um, more more people, a, a variety of people on TV, on magazines in the world. Now, do you feel like the power structure? Do, okay, how what's your outlook on the world? Is it that? Your generation has to do it. Is it that older generations need to learn or is it burn the whole thing down? Let's start fresh. I think probably a little bit of all of them. I think that my generation is not taking no for an answer. Good. Thank God. It is going to happen no matter what. It would be a lot easier if we could get older generations on board with us. You will never get the boomers on board. That's your grandparents. Maybe so. (laughs) Because they are selfish as hell. And they, first of all, they were damaged by the greatest generation. They were ignored by them. So they became a whole generation of narcissists. And they're, if you see someone over 50 screaming on a phone in a restaurant, just realize that's, that's a boomer. They can't, that's, they they have to take up all the space. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, what really is sad to me is that they were ignored. And so- I feel like it's almost a reflection of what our generation, like what millennials and Gen, Z, uh, Gen Zers are going through. And so what I really want to make sure doesn't happen is that we turn out the same way. I think Thank we, need, we need to go in a different direction. And do you feel, how much do you feel like Instagram, Twitter, social media is helping? And do you think in some ways it's hurting to make people more insular? I mean, I've heard so many adults tell me that I'm addicted to my phone. So every it depends on what you're using it for. If you're probably, subverting the probably, patriarchy, probably you're- a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. Okay. Well, so yes, social media can distract us from our great goal of making the world a better place. But I think it's also really built up empathy among my generation because we are suddenly able to be connected to people from literally across the world, talking to people our age who, and just bridging that gap between cultures that like 50 years ago, we would have thought was too big to bridge. Yeah, and or you would have hated them just because they're different. I mean, exactly. that, that's what was happening. And, yeah. Do you feel like, would you ever run for president? When I was Do people little, ask you this? There was briefly a hashtag on Twitter called Mina for president. It was, it was the best thing ever. <laughs> um, when I was little, I really wanted to be the first woman president. And then you might get your and chance. Then, and then Hillary Clinton came around. I was like, oh, that's not going to happen. But obviously, I'm so happy. And then... Here we are. Yeah. And then here we are. Are you excited about any candidates? Are you, is it too early to tell? I think it's a little bit too early, but I do have my eye on Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. Great. That makes me so happy. I like candidates who are real people and who we can see emotions from. And I know that's a dangerous thing for women to show because you don't want to, because you instantly get demonized for it. Unhinged, whatever, period, jokes, et cetera, et cetera. Oh my gosh. Oh, all of it. Meanwhile, we're the ones keeping it all together. Well, it's interesting that you should mention about the the visibility of women in media, because the person I want to talk about today was involved in World War II. And when you think about the World War II war effort when and women, do you do you, does it conjure any connection or images? Not really. When I think of World War II, I think of white men fighting. That's pretty much what happened. But there were millions of women in all countries involved in the war effort and not just nurses and not just Rosie the Riveter at home, you know, polishing bullets. It was women Sp- female spies, female soldiers, um, and um, tons of women died 
which is not talked about. Over in America alone, under half a million women served in the armed forces, and a lot of them were spies. And I want to introduce you to one of them today. So, Mina, are you ready to learn about a woman? Time looked right in the eyes and then started talking to someone else at the party. I am so ready. Let's go. September 28th, 1913, San Francisco, California, which I believe one of your parents is from there. Um, you lived there? I lived there. I lived there for five years when I was young. Well, so you know where Sunset Beach is. I do know where Sunset Well, that is where this very amazing woman grew up. Well, she wasn't born there, but she moved there when she was very young. So this is, in 1913, this is seven years after the great earthquake of 1906. Do you know anything about that earthquake? I know it was really bad. It was really bad. I read a Jack and Annie book about it when I was little. And what did it, it was just like the buildings burned, everyone had, all, all was the homeless. Books, all the books, like they were going to take it to a different location and then the location they took it to ended up burning and the original place didn't. I don't know. I hope that's true because it was in a Magic Treehouse book, but. Well, so they tried to slip some history into a Magic yeah. Treehouse book. They, well, it did burn to the ground. 80% of the city absolutely destroyed. What's remarkable, though, is in four years, the city was rebuilt and better than ever because San Francisco before the, this earthquake was basically designed by like. Yosemite Sam prospectors and people there for fortune hunting and stuff like that. So it wasn't really technically that great. And so it was an opportunity to burn it down and start fresh. Not that they they planned to do that. Um, So by the time Alice Marble was born in 1913, the city was known as the crown jewel of the West. And I just want Los Angeles to remember that, that we will never be that. San Francisco already has that type. You already, yeah, you already had it. Do you, when was the last time you were in San Francisco? Six months ago? Oh, you go a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's close and we have friends there, so, okay. yeah. Do you feel, have, have you noticed, as I have, the insane amount of uh, wealth disparity and uh, homelessness there? Oh, definitely. Do you, are you aware of it even as... A kid every year getting worse? Do you see it? I mean, I know that I'm. it's partially selfish because I'm going to be going into college soon. And then I you mean to tomorrow? Like, when are you? Are you going to college early? I have I'm a rising junior. So I have two years left. So you're going to go to college at 17? Yes. OK, <laughs> pretty impressive. Do you know where you're going to go? OK, so the dream is Oxford. <laughs> Please do it. <laughs> um, but who knows? I think I think you just put it out in the universe. The universe has no choice but to make yeah. that happen. Sorry, universe, you gotta you gotta give it to me. <laughs> do my bidding. Well, okay. So here's what's crazy. I, the reason I brought the homelessness up in San Francisco, it doesn't really relate to the story, but I just wanted to touch on it because mm-hmm. it was a fact that I came across when I was researching um, our subject today. So back, okay, there were four hundred thousand people living in. San Francisco at the time, the disaster struck and the Army Corps of Engineers kicked into gear and they built temporary shelters for 20,000 people that cost $100 each in no time. So when someone says we can't help the homeless population here, we can point to this and be like, we've done it before. We can do it again. We can do it again. It's yeah. By the way, one of those houses, there's only one left of the temporary shelters. They're like 700 square feet sold last year for $600,000. Of course it did. Of course it did. Um, So this is about Alice Marble. It's not about the real estate industry (laughs) in San Francisco. So she was born in a town called Beckworth. Have you heard of that town? I have not. Yeah, I think we just have to pull a Baytown, Texas here and just reference the big city she 
is associated with. As I said, she was raised in the Sunset District and she had a brother, Tim. Now, Mina, I want you to keep in mind during this whole episode that we cannot judge them for their boring names. Alice, Tim, they've got another brother I'll bring up later. This was a time where no one was being creative with baby names. They were just like, that's someone in my family's name. Let's just get it done. We're busy. We have things to do. So don't fall asleep when I start listing their names. Okay. Okay? So Tim, do you know, by the way, speaking of dumb names, Tim's not a dumb name. It's a boring name, but it's not a dumb name. Do you have anybody at your school named Bentley? No. Do you have anyone named Ensley? Oakland? Cashton? Oh, are you reading? There's this list online of potential baby names. This is the these are the worst baby names in America right now. Oh, perfect. Are these? Is this your generation or is this the next generation? I think a combination of both. Emberly Paisley, spelled P A I S. I do know Paisley. Is it spelled L E I G H at the end? God no. Um, okay. I saw a photo of a magazine one time where it was Caitlyn, but they replaced um, the eight part with Roman numerals. <laughs> I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm going to puke in my mouth. It was really funny. I don't know if you plan on having kids. It's none of my business. It doesn't make you a woman whether or not you do or not. But <laughs> please just consider something that isn't going to scar this. You know. I'll try to remain sane when Thank I you. name my potential children. Yeah, no Ensleys. Um, and definitely no Bentleys. And also you can weed out friends. Oh, this is a great thing for when you go to Oxford. When you go to Oxford, you can ask people, regardless of gender, just be like, have you thought of like, I don't know, are you going to have kids? Have you thought of their names? And if they say any of these names, you know that you can't be friends with them. Sorry, like this is this is just not going to work. Got it. It's a great friend test. So Alice and Tim, I know, boring, used to go watch the local San Francisco Seals, which was a baseball team, um, play. And while and they used to play catch in the bleachers. And one day, one of the players thought Alice was a boy and asked her to come down to the field and play catch. I don't know what baseball players do. Throw the ball around. Okay. <laughs> Tossed. Toss the old roundy. I, I don't know. I am not a baseball player, so I could not tell you. <laughs> oh, good. We're both in the same boat then. So she then, and then they found out she was a girl. And then they started going like, oh, what a funny thing. Isn't it funny that we have a girl coming to enjoy our man sport? So they made her their um, mascot. So she was the mascot for this team. And everyone was like, I mean, part of it was like a gimmick because they were like, look okay. at this girl who likes baseball. She became a San Francisco local superstar and she had another brother named Dan. I know, coma, um, who s- sounds to me from the story less cool than Tim. She was told by her brother, Dan, who's an, her older brother, that she can't keep hitting baseballs and acting like a boy. So he gave her a tennis racket. Now, I know is this it sounds like the sexist. the size of the ball or what? Well, I think the difference is baseball is something that boys can go play in the street and be wild and free. You Anything can be your baseball diamond. <laughs> but a tennis court is like but most things for women. Restricted to the tennis You're in a court. box. There are mm. specific rules. There's a dress code. It's more, quote unquote, feminine, I right? Guess. I or I mean, refined, I or like, I feel like these boys are playing baseball wrong if they think there aren't rules and also a dress code. But like, yeah, have you seen the Sandlot? I have. Yeah, yeah. I think these are Sandlot rules. Okay, like one day, we'll, sure, one day we'll run the bases and stuff. But right now, we're just kids we're with just gum in our mouth, stuff with a stick. Okay, yeah, they're just stick kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here's the thing: jokes on them because she was 
a masterful tennis player. At 15 years old, your age, she was whopping people at juniors tennis matches, just wiping the courts with these chumps. And by the way, not just women, men also, just creaming them. She had an amateur career, which was nearly stopped short because in 1932, she got tuberculosis and was told by a doctor that she would never play tennis again. And she was like, here's middle finger number one, and here's middle (laughs) finger number two. And with her coach, she, uh, Eleanor Tennant, she basically totally came back, Linda Hamilton style, better, faster, stronger, etc. You know, and this is, a lot of stuff happened actually when she started her tennis career, which is tragic. And I'm I'm going to talk about them, uh, these two things uh, in uh, small detail, because I just, I think it colors the story for later. But while she was an um, amateur's um, champ, she saw her best friend get run over by a trolley, murdered in front of her by a streetcar. And one night when she was coming, when she was finished doing um, tennis lessons at Sunset Park, she was sexually assaulted. So a lot of stuff that when you're a kid could mm-hmm. absolutely just ruin just your- send you completely off the rails. She took all that shit and she put it right into tennis. By the time she became a professional, she had won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in both singles and doubles. What an icon. I love her. She was the number one tennis player in the world- by the time she was a pro. In the world. How old was she? She was the world champ in 1939. Minus 19. 19- yes, girl. Okay. Oh, my God. You, you, Oxford. <laughs> Call. She could do math in her head. Okay. So, the other thing she did during this time is when she was playing... Um, people were playing at this point. Women were playing in long maxi skirts. And... Alice Marble was like, uh, hard pass. I'm going to wear shorts. And it was a scandal. Do you remember when um, uh, Serena wore that crazy short thing at the French yeah. Open and everyone was like, oh, God, Women I can see her legs. Bodies? Oh, my God. That's exactly what this was. And she was in basically like jams. She was in like lo- shorts between shorts and pants and people couldn't take it. But you know what? She did it. She stuck with it. She got shorts were acceptable for women to wear in tennis because of her. And then you're like, oh, so she already, if you just, if she just got hit by a street cart after this, she would have had a very successful life. But it doesn't stop there. And you're, where we're going to take this is going to shock you, impress you. You're really going to have to, I mean, you have a head start on her already, but like you, when you see the, the, I chose her for you because of her impressive accomplishments. Cause I think you will relate so much with the rest, what she did for the rest of her life. So she took a little bit break from tennis after playing pro. And the first thing she went to do is to work for DC comics. Now, There was this guy, William Moulton Marston, who is the creator of Wonder Woman. And what DC Comics was doing at the time was they were going around to female athletes and going like, can you come endorse Wonder Woman so we can sell more copies? And she was like, I won't endorse it, but I will come work for you as your editor. She was the editor of Wonder Woman. And a lot of the ideas of Wonder Woman are from Alice Marble. Not only that, she created a spinoff comic book 
all about important historical American women. So she was doing our job before we did our job. She invented this job. Got it. A new media platform celebrating women who had been erased from history and putting them on heroic things. Boy, I really finished that. Putting them on heroic pedestals. She... The, oh, the name of it was Wonder Women, because there's lots of us. <laughs> now, this is when we she has another period of life where she, a lot of a lot of terrible things happen. She left DC Comics and she entered a very sad part of her life. Now, we have to talk about it a little bit because everybody's our tragedies make us who we are also, not just our accomplishments. She married a fighter pilot, Joe Crowley, in 1942, and he was sent off to war, World War II to fight. What do you think happened to him? I'm going to take a wild guess and say he did not make it through. He did not make it through. Not only that, she had a, she was pregnant with their child. She had a miscarriage at five months. And then she found out he was killed in action. So she, in one small period of time, she lost her entire family, basically. Now, at this point, she had survived so much. I mean, everything from her childhood, the ups and the downs were so deep and so high. So she was, and, and also not to mention the fact that during her tennis, her whole tennis career, I didn't even mention this, she was being vili- vilified for acting like a man. And had to ignore that too. So the world was against her in so many different ways. And now this, and she actually sadly attempted suicide at this point. It was truly too much for her. And um, it didn't work. It didn't work. She was an emotional mess still after the suicide attempt. And I mean, I, and also this is a time there was no therapy. This was a bootstrap situation where Old-timey people, when you were deeply, deeply sad, they would be like, dust your shoulders off, get back out there, stop whining. It was a sad time to be, I mean, for mental health, it was a sad time to be alive. Okay. It was sad. So one day, the U.S. government knocked on our door. She's in the middle of a depression. The U.S. government knocks on our door, and they're like, hey, you know how you used to date this guy who was a banker from Switzerland? We think he is hoarding paintings for the Nazis. Do you want to, like, go find out? And she, this is what she said. This is from her book, um, uh, Courting Danger, which you should read. It's amazing. Uh, And also, what a great title for a book. Tennis tennis pun? Sounds like an awesome book and anything with a pun in the title. You love puns? Has has my heart. Oh, my God. Do you have a favorite pun? Or do you just love to, like, sneak them in and be like... I like, like, taking the current situation and kind of crafting a pun out of it. I can't come up with one. I won't put you on the spot. But if you think of one during the rest of the episode, you have permission to interrupt, derail, whatever you want to do. I will just... I'll put a stop to everything. Like, literal breaks on the situation. Here's why she said yes to this. She said in her book, I felt I had nothing left to lose but my life. And at the time, I didn't care about living. Which I guess is not a good thing to tell the U.S. government to just go out there and start looking for depressed people to start spying for you. I I don't have anything to lose, so I guess. So, yeah, I guess so. Now, here's the thing. She was an amazing spy. She was amazing. 
her ex, Hans Steinmetz, who wasn't a Nazi per se, but was a Nazi sympathizer. He was a banker in Switzerland, which, by the way, being a Nazi sympathizer in my book is worse than being a Nazi. I feel like that's just it's like this is going to sound really bad. I can't wait. But it's like you don't have you're like kind of a coward, but also you're racist and the worst but like also you're a coward so you don't have anything going for you you're not even brave enough to be hateful exactly like when, what i know that's what you're saying like it's not good yeah <laughs> but yeah and also it's like oh so the other level of it is like so you see the hateful things they're doing you see the genocide that they're acting out and you feel bad for them you f- you understand exactly. them, but oh, you can't I'll help you by giving you a lot of money, like Coca Cola, um, Hugo Boss, Ford. Okay, just just to name a couple people who were like, no, 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 the Nazis are bad, but we do want them drinking our Coke. We do want them. They've got to stay hydrated. I mean, but what's genocide when you could make money? Yeah, well, Mina, my heart just cried when you said that. <laughs> I don't know if I could recover. So she had dated Hans Steinmetz. So when she was like, hey, listen, my, my husband died in a war and, um, you know, my baby's gone and all this stuff. So, like, do you want to fuck? He was like, fuck yeah. He, I mean, look, here's the thing. I, there were so, there's so many female spies that I don't even have time to get into, but they were just using patriarchal sexism against the war effort to undermine the war effort. I mean, I love that. Like, if it's gonna, if, if everybody is going to be sexist, might as well use that to your advantage. Destroy them yeah. because of it. Yeah, that's how I feel. So her job was to photograph the paintings in his, like, whatever, wine cellar. And have you heard this movie, Monuments Men? No, it's a I George Clooney so. mon. <sighs> Good. I'm glad. <laughs> don't waste your time. But it's a bad, it's a George Clooney movie, which, by the way, I like George Clooney. I think he does good. Good stuff. But he always does these movies where he's like, it's eight of my best guy friends and Kate Blanchett. And that's what this is. So it's a bunch of guys. It's about a bunch of guys who steal art from the Nazis before the Nazis destroy the art. So you want to go into a war zone with some architects and artists and tell our boys what they can and cannot blow up. That's right. Aren't we a little old for that? And here's the thing. They didn't have to sleep with anybody. All they had to do was go in and be smart and they didn't even have to really like interact with any Nazis, she was in the shit. She was, like, she, in it. Living in the house. She The call was coming from inside of the house, and it was Alice Marble, and she was there to spy. So she got the pics. Then she went to meet her American contact, and he was like, oh, cool, why don't you hand over the camera and the film to me? And she was like, something in my witch's gut says that this is not right. So she ran, and it turned out this guy was a double agent for the Nazis in the U.S., and he shot her in the back. I feel like that's not even subtle. <laughs> also, cowardly. You, you shoot somebody yeah. when they're running away from you? But it's like, like a double agent shooting her in the back. Like, I appreciate the irony of that, but do better. <laughs> so... He was a lousy shot because she was barely injured. And also, I feel like you can't kill Alice Marble. Like, come at me, bro. Yeah. Yeah. So, but he did get the camera in the film. But here's the thing. Alice Marble has a 
photographic memory. And so she went and testified to the U.S. government. She was basically like, go four degrees this way and six degrees this way. And you'll find this, <laughs> you'll find this clip uh, painting and go six degrees. Like she described, she basically police lined up. She did a police sketch of every single painting in his basement. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. You don't fuck with Alice Marble. Do you have a good memory? Sometimes. It depends on what it's for. Like, oh, if you care or not? Yeah. Like, and like for math, no. But for. for you just did ma- a simple math in your head. <laughs> but like, but for. You're talking about matrices and stuff like that. God, I cannot <laughs> handle matrices. Did I just trigger you? <laughs> it's summer. Okay. I don't have to talk Sorry. about this right now. <laughs> so what do you do? What do you do with your life after you've nailed a Nazi figuratively and criminally? You start cleaning out monsters at home. And that's what she did with her beloved sport tennis. Because honestly, how can you go back to, what can you, you can't go knitting after all this stuff. Just do like some nice embroidery of the war scenes. Yeah, that's photographic evidence. So in 1950, she was writing for American Law and Tennis Magazine. She was doing, she was involved in tennis like as a writer and as a commentator and all this stuff. She, oh, oh, also, I didn't mention this. I want to get to this, but she, for a short period of time, was also a singer in supper clubs. I mean, honestly, she did it all. She would base, if you went into like a supper club in like the 50s and 60s in New York City, you'd sit down for a steak and a martini and then Alice Marble would be there serenading you with her beautiful voice. Okay, but did she ever like combine them? Like, would she serenade about all the adventures she'd had or was she just like compartmentalized? You know what? I really think a Broadway producer should have gotten involved with her life because this would have been fantastic. Missed opportunity. I concur. (laughs) She, okay, so in 1950, she was writing an article for American Lawn Tennis Magazine, which I don't even understand the title of that. What is Law and Tennis? Lawn Tennis? Lawn Tennis? Like Front Yard? I don't get it. I mean... We don't have to understand everything <laughs> to understand her story. So she publicly called out professional tennis for having segregated tournaments, specifically tearing them a new one over player Althea Gibson, who they were denying her entry into their competitions. And here's what she wrote. Miss Gibson is over a very cunningly wrought barrel, and I can only hope to loosen a few of its staves with one lone opinion. If tennis is a game for ladies and gentlemen, it's time we acted a little more like gentle people and less like sanctimonious hypocrites. If Althea Gibson represents a challenge to the present crop of women players, it's only fair that they should meet that challenge on the court. Then she went on to say that if they weren't going to let her compete, she said... Then there is an ineradicable mark against a game to which I have devoted most of my life, and I would be bitterly ashamed. You don't want a war hero. I'm kind of getting, like, weird Professor McGonagall vibes from her. You know? Will you explain to me who that is? From Harry Potter? Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. Now I got it. Mm -hmm. You have to understand, I'm an adult watching Harry Potter. There There is stigma with that. Even... All right. Even my gender. The first Harry Potter came out. Do, do you know what year? Do you remember how old you were? I don't think I was born. You were not born. So, yeah. okay, here's the thing. I was like, what? Married? <laughs> it's hard. I'm saying if you're, I'm not like a, into fantasy stuff. Okay. And so if you're not into fantasy All right, and you're acceptable. an adult, you're an adult woman okay. with a husband. <laughs> It's hard to, it's not hard in Los Angeles, but I think I struggle 
with enjoying childlike things as an adult because I was raised in the South and that's not really acceptable. Like you don't go to Disneyland if you're a single adult Mm -hmm. in Texas, but you can do that here. Okay. There's just a lot more social freedom here and I struggle with that. Also, I don't really think those movies are for me. I love the gay positivity. I love that they're like, but didn't he come out like three movies in? He didn't come out at all. He didn't. No, it was now. I, that's my problem. Yes. Okay. You know that's fair. You I had like, to figure out that my, can be the excuse. I just but made it anyway. Up. She's like Professor McGonagall is like old and female and awesome. So and she like has like the old voice, but also she like. And she's da- the Dowager Countess. Person. Is that the same actress, Dowager Countess, who plays Professor McGonagall? Is she also in in um, Downton Abbey? Yes, I think so. It's her, right? No, it's uh, Ma- Maggie, it's not Maggie Smith. It is Maggie Smith. Yes. Yeah. See, okay. Now I will re- rewatch. How much? Ma- what's her screen time? Is it like eighty percent? Okay, she's better in the books, though. Okay, so because of this letter, Althea Gibson was allowed into the tournament. Now she was able to play in the nineteen fifties U.S. Championship, becoming the first American. First African-American player in a Grand Slam event. Now, was that due to Alice Marble opening the door? Absolutely. Let's not discount the amazing talent of Althea Gibson and the fact that she got where she was despite the segregation in the tennis organization in the first place. So... In 1964, Alice Marble was finally inducted in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. At that point, she moved to Palm Desert, which, not Palm Springs. Have you been to- Palm Desert just as hot, though? Yep. It's just right next door. They didn't have enough creativity to figure out a a better name, so they were like, take the first part of this guy, and we'll put a second word on it. Desert, yeah. Palm Desert. There's no water? Cool. Oh, Mina. Do you ever go to Palm Springs? I don't think I've been, actually. Yeah, why would you? It's not really a place where I think you would enjoy anything. But (laughs) Palm Desert, if you ever go, if you ever get um, dragged to Palm Springs, make your parents take you to a steakhouse in Palm Desert because you'll know which one it is because there's a clown valet. Oh, lovely. So Alice Marble, sadly, is no longer with us like many of these amazing women, Uh, but her legacy lives on, and we have to make sure that other people know about her, Mina, so I have a game I want us to play. Okay. It's less of a game and more of a thing where I pretend to know what teens do, and then you read a pre-prepared script that I wrote. Got it. It's very wordy. It's unnatural phrasing. You would never talk like this. So are you ready? Let's go. Okay. Scenario number one. You're watching The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. A show that in the 90s was about a teen and a cat puppet and two moms, and it turned into somehow now a serious reflection on the darkness of youth. So you're watching that, and one of the characters, and I don't really watch the show, so like one of the female presenting characters, let's call her Sussert, uh, she's being bullied for wearing a necktie to school. This is what you shout at your TV screen or phone. Hey! Clothes are about comfort, ya bully. Imagine Wimbledon champ Alice Marble trying to grand slam her competition in stupidly gender acceptable clothing. That's brilliant. And see, the thing is, is you're teaching the TV, but hopefully someone, like if your windows are open, they'll hear. Got it. Yeah. Scenario two. You're at Lush buying a bath bomb. Yeah? Sure. Okay. Does... Sounds like I have misjudged, but uh, I feel like no. I feel like the first part of this scenario is good, and then the second part of the scenario, where the cashier is a ninety-year-old man, <laughs> is a little. 
I had to reverse engineer this to make it work for the response. <laughs> All right. For people who are confused, the scenario is you're at Lush buying a bath bomb. The cashier is a 90-year-old man who jokes, you better watch out for that bomb, young lady. You reply, if Alice Marble can be a World War II spy and survive getting shot in the back by a double agent, I can handle an overly perfumed ball filled with citric acid and sodium bicarbonate. Yeah, and then you just drop the mic on that because that's Boom. a good burn. <laughs> and no, it's... It, you're you've got attitude. You know about science. You know you've got history on your back. It's so good. It's such a good bird. Okay, scenario three. You're making an ASMR video, but not sure about what to whisper. Then you remember you co-hosted this podcast. You barely say, "I refuse to let Alice Marvel go on celebrate." <laughs> I'm sorry. So good. No, you're good. I love this. <laughs> Hold on. Um. Okay. Can I tap on it? Is that Oh, yeah, I love it. I refuse to let Alice Marble go uncelebrated one second more. Mina, I think you have a career in so many fields. Politics, math, and quite frankly, comedy. You are a talent, and thank you for sharing your knowledge and your... Your, your attitude and your fantastic energy with us today. Thank you so much for having me. History the Sequel is built on the backs of amazing dead women who created the opportunities you have today. Produced by Cody Fisher, engineered by Ryan Connor, researched by Alex Everhart at Alex Icon Devil, if you want to follow. And the episode was hosted by Aaron and Mina. The play's the thing, says the fair Miss Alice Marble, the American champion. So here's the play. With her tall figure and her brilliant tennis, Miss Marble has been a popular favourite on the principal tennis courts of England this summer. Her kick service is considered second to none among women players, whilst her well-assorted strokes have made her a welcome and attractive match for the best of them. This Alice may not be in Wonderland, but she's certainly marvellous. <laughs>